Jude Schwalbach of the Reason Foundation. Thank you so much for joining this, us this morning on our podcast. I am really looking forward to talking to you about this concept that uh, basically about open enrollment, whereby parents can choose a, to send their children to a school that's not in the district in which they live. And it sometimes is called inter-district choice or open enrollment. And there's also within district choice called intra-district choice. But this is a policy area that has bubbled up in Missouri in the last year. And I am pretty confident that the Missouri legislature is going to take it up starting in January. I've heard from different legislators and other folks that it's kind of the year for inter-district choice in Missouri. And it is a very, also at the same time, very foreign notion to folks in Missouri. And uh, we have a, we're mostly a rural state. And um, a lot of folks in rural areas are like, why would we do that? We love our high school. We would never go to a different high school. We would never be an eagle and not a falcon. Like we would never ever, you know, our people don't need that. And it turns out that many, many, many states have open enrollment. Many states have mandatory open enrollment. And it has grown, I believe, as a policy option for parents. And so you have a new report where you rank all of the 50 states on their open enrollment laws, right, for the Reason Foundation? Yeah. That's right. And how did you go about ranking them? Yeah, so um, I, I, I so I went through and looked at each state's code, and I used five metrics uh, to rank 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 each state's open enrollment policy. So forty three states have some form of open enrollment, but the question is, like, is is this good policy? Yeah. Uh, and so these five metrics are sort of the baseline for what we think is good open enrollment policy. The first metric is uh, mandatory cross-district open enrollment. So this means uh, all districts would have to participate in open enrollment. They'd have to accept transfer students from other districts so long as they have open seats. And the districts have to post their open enrollment policies and procedures on their websites. So in states that have had open enrollment for a while, if it's not mandatory, then the sort of wealthy district next to the poor district can say, we're not accepting students. Uh, we will let our students leave, maybe, but we won't accept students coming in. And if they are kind of forced to do it, they might just say, we don't have any open seats. Yeah, th th this is like, uh, th that's, a, that's a really good example because this happens in Ohio all the time. I know we're here to talk about Missouri, but Ohio has this problem uh, where most districts in Ohio actually participate in open enrollment. But the districts that don't participate are the affluent suburban districts that She's form right. these rings around every, like if you look at a map and you have yeah. districts that participate and those that don't, they form these rings around every urban center, which means the kids that live in the city, uh, the, the city districts aren't working for them. Uh, they can't, you know, travel all the way to a rural district. Like that, that's too much of a time suck on families. Yeah. Uh, but the, the next nearest thing is not available to them. But you have the same issue for the kids that live in the rural districts next to the suburban districts. They don't they can't access them either. Yeah. Um, so, so that's why. Exclusive. Yeah, it's very it can be very exclusive. The mm -hmm. districts are frankly just being protectionist. So um, in your so, in your metrics, states get more points if it's mandatory and they have to post their open seats. So once they say we've got six fifth grade seats, they can't go back on a fifth grader. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. They should, they have to accept those students, uh, any transfer students, so long as uh, there are seats that are open. The same thing for mandatory within district open enrollment as well. So, um, you know, districts have to accept all students from other catchment zones um, in, in their district, so long as they have open seats. And again, so, you know, needing to post those policies and procedures online, because if you don't do that, then families aren't going to know uh, that 
this is an option. Families should not have to walk into their school, their, their assigned school or school district to discover that they don't have to go there. So, right. so they can a- ask those questions. This should be public information that's readily available to families. Um, as, as, you know, especially if you, know, you have a working mom or dad, they, they can't take time off from work to go into the office to find out uh, that they can go somewhere else. This, this should be really easy for them to do. They should be able to hop on their phone and find out right away. Yeah. And then especially in larger districts, this inter-district, within-district, open enrollment, you know, a lot of major cities now, New Orleans stands out because they became all charter. And so everyone had to pick pick a school, basically. Uh, D.C., where you are, um, Camden, Denver. I mean, a lot of these bigger cities, parents go into a common application. They put in their top four or five or 10 choices. The computer algorithm spits out what school they're assigned to. And in most cases, they can go to the neighborhood school if that's what they pick. And they try to keep siblings together. I mean, they don't just randomly, (laughs) you know, they have families in mind when they design the computer algorithms. But basically, you can go to any school in the district. And this idea of having to move around within your city is uh, is no longer relevant. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, it, it, It just makes it easy for families to have options. And uh, you know, st- states, if they want, they, they can codify uh, prioritization for certain students. So, you know, right. like you were saying, siblings or uh, kids that whose families are reassigned, to, have a military reassignment yeah. or, or in foster care. There's all sorts of ways you can prior- or prioritize kids uh, so that you can keep families together, make sure that kids that really need the help are prioritized. Right. So what's the third thing? Uh, transparent state education agency report. So this we're all for transparency. A, yeah. So we, we want districts to be transparent because, like you mentioned earlier, uh, we we want to make sure that districts are be, you know there's it's a loving pl- level playing field that districts aren't gaming the system here. And so what this is is that you know, the state education agency must collect and publish important open enrollment data in annual reports, and specifically this means the number of transfer students the number of rejected applications. And then this, this is the kicker and where a lot of states miss, uh, miss the boat here is that they need to have the reasons for why those transfers applicants were rejected. Now, some states do do that, right? Yeah, yeah. Wisconsin does this. They, they, they do an incredible job. In fact, Wisconsin has like the most outstanding transparency uh, That's awesome. uh, SEA reports of like a- any state in the union. Yeah, I think uh, I saw a blog recently by your colleague, Aaron Smith, that about you know, districts rejecting transfer students who come with IEPs or students with disabilities, right? So that's the kind of information that we need to have out there. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, we 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 want to know why those students were rejected. Like one of the only good reasons a district should be able to reject an applicant is because they don't have available seats. Right. And with this information, we can see why, why they are rejected and also the number of rejections. So we can see if there's like some fluctuation as well. Uh, so, yeah. uh, and so we ensure that, you know, districts, well, you, you can kind of get a sense for how many seats are available over the, over the years as you have more and more of these reports come out. Um, you know, I was um, <clears throat> recently looking into this idea of inter-district choice for Missouri, and I was Googling, like, how many Alabama students use inter-district choice? How many students in this state transfer? Many, many states don't publish those numbers at all. Yeah, this, this all. is actually... Very few states have good transparency reports. In fact, in my paper, I only found that three states what met this metric. Uh, they are uh, Wisconsin, Wisconsin, obviously. Obviously, yeah. it, oh, it's Oklahoma, and then I believe the okay. other is uh, Kansas. 
Yeah. Wow. So, Those yeah. So, yeah. Kansas and Oklahoma have relatively new programs. Um, and they so, did a good job from the start. Yeah, they did a really good job from the start. I we'll see, that. you know, how, uh, how, how, how the law like, plays out in practice and, you know, see if there's any tweaks that need to come up. But we are really happy with the language as it uh, was initially uh when it came out. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, I mean, I we talk about this in Missouri a lot where <clears throat> we want to get a thing. Like we did pass an ESA bill uh, a couple of years ago, but it's not ideal. You know what I mean? Like we passed mm-hmm. the thing and it's like, why don't we aim really high and do a great interdistrict choice law this year instead of like a an okay one just to get a foot in the door and then go back and fix it later? Because when we go back to fix things, it's not very successful. We know what a good law is. And I want to get, get get on to number four and five, but you have made it very clear and other folks too, like, here's what a good interdistrict choice law looks like. Let's aim that, I, I aim our sights on yeah. that, like Oklahoma and Kansas did and not do like a incremental, voluntary, no reporting kind of thing. Yeah. I think having a good law right off the bat is, is key. Uh, fam- families want this option. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> Uh, like we, we should give that opportunity to them right away. They they shouldn't Absolutely. have to. They should have to wait for incremental changes like this. Uh, and if you write a good law right away, um, and especially if you align, making sure that there are finan- that, that financial incentives are aligned, uh, yeah. it, it's a win win for districts uh, and families. Okay, number four for you. Yes, is... uh, transparent capacity reports. That just like means we were that. Talking about. Yeah, well, it, it basically means that school districts need to post their available capacity by grade level on their website. So families should be able to hop on the website and say, okay, there are, you know, 10 spots open at this school uh, in grade four. Yeah. And they, they, they need to know, or if there are no spots available, because you don't want them to waste their time uh, on an application. Also, it gives families a sense for uh, what capacity looks like at a school. And it's, it's just yeah. public accountability at the end of the day. And I should point out, theoretically... If the family moves into that district, they can just simply go to that school because the schools that yeah. are like, we don't have capacity. It's like that whole capacity argument doesn't work in the assigned yes. school sense of the word. You have to take the kid, but apparently the capacity becomes a whole thing, which <laughs> I guess I get. And then the last thing is. Yes. So prohibiting districts from charging tuition. Okay. Uh, so you'd be really surprised that a lot of states allows public schools to charge tuition Missouri. to transfer students. Yeah, I will Missouri say this, one of last year, Missouri parents spent over $1.6 million of their own money to send their children to a school in a different district. They paid yeah. tuition. Yeah. This, you know, like those are the families that can afford that because it's usually expensive. In Texas, uh, Lovejoy Independent School District, they charge $14,000 in tuition every year for uh, each transfer student. That's that's a huge barrier to low-income right. families uh, or, or, frankly, even a lot of middle-class families as well. For sure. Like, and um, the idea of paying tuition to a public school just, you know, I guess you yeah. do the math, you're like, it's cheaper than moving. I mean, this whole, like, well, if you want to go to school there, you have to move. It the to, For me, the connection between public school your a child's public school experience or a child's education experience and where their parents live is just a connection that we just need to break. Yeah. It's outdated. It, it just needs to be broken. We should no longer combine real estate, um, a child's education, in my opinion. Yeah, absolutely. It, it's, uh, you know, m- many of the, the, the school side, school district lines, you know, they, unfortunately they, they have, a. Uh, an ugly history where many of them are mirroring discriminatory policies that are sure. that are now illegal. Yeah. And 
you know, it, 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 th- those policies are still affecting families today. That's right. Uh, especially, especially low income families. And that's right. Uh, moving away from that model is just key. In fact, the Joint Economic Committee published a report maybe three or four years ago and basically said that the median price of homes and zip codes associated with highly rated schools is four times as much as the median price of homes associated in poorly rated schools. Yeah, and I think uh, we know that, but there's just so many people that just accept that. Just go, yeah, yeah. Right. Well, they bought the house in the good na- in the good school district. It should be worth more. And then they pay more in property taxes. And I just believe that when schools began being funded with property taxes, it was like a hundred and some years ago, more than a hundred years ago, turn of the former century, maybe that made sense, but it does not make sense to me in 2022 that you have to buy a house, pay property taxes within this imaginary circle in order to have your child go to the school that you want for that child. As a parent of three, I might've picked three different schools for my three different kids. I mean, there's a lot of chaos in my household, but I don't know for sure that I wouldn't have because, you know, uh, and then, and then, there are things happening today in the schools and one in Missouri, that's kind of a big deal is a lot of kids are going to four day weeks and there are parents who are living in that district who don't want to move. I mean, think about like when you have a house, you don't necessarily just want to move for this middle school period, whatever it is. Um, And you work five days and all of a sudden the school district has announced that it's a four day district. What are you supposed to do? Yeah. it, It creates a big problem. Um, and then we had yeah. the masking, the vaccines, the clothes, the, oh, I mean, all of those things, which really caught across all economic lines where people are like, I bought a very expensive house in a very good school district and they still closed. <laughs> it's like, yeah. I yeah. am unhappy. <laughs> yeah. It made a lot of family families unhappy. And I think Darrell Bradford was on a, a yeah. panel at AI a few weeks ago. I was just talking about how f- families are really upset because they felt like they could control their kids' education. Yeah. And then with COVID, they realized they couldn't. And that, that's created a lot of discontent when it comes to education. Yeah. I think families are ready. Uh, to, they're saying we want more control. And something like open enrollment is going to provide uh, most families with some control over their kids' education. You're no longer assigned to a school. Yeah. Uh, you have to at least look into some different schools. Even yeah, you, make you a choice, you at least have to invest a little bit of time into, you know, yeah, and then there are some states like Arizona that have been doing those a long time, and people are like, and and you live in DC, and you're a new parent to a, a little one, and you know when your son is four, he'll be like, let's look around at kindergarten. It's like the there's, and then that generation, you know, what I mean, like we're on second generation school choice kids. So yeah, my parents looked around for a school for me, and I'm going to look around for a school for my kid. And this idea of just address assignment is getting busted apart. I think uh, there's a. a survey that's done every other year by the U.S. Department of Education, National Household Education Survey. And the percentage of parents who report their children are in their assigned public school is down to like below 70, 67, 68. So two thirds, maybe it used to be everyone. So, Mm -hmm. you know, when my parents went to school, let's say everyone, it's no longer everyone. So it is slowly busting apart, but this is an important one. And I think people need to understand that not only are school district lines imaginary, but like you said, they were put in place lots of times for bad reasons. And yes. so this thing we're clinging to is not the, I mean, St. Louis County, which is not a very big county, has 22 school districts. Yeah. And many of them are tiny and they were carved out. You know, St. Louis has got a very difficult past when it involves uh, involving racism and redlining and a lot of redlining in St. Yeah. Louis. 
we still have a lot of problems. And we have some little districts got carved off and carved off and carved off. And now we have 22 districts in one county. <laughs> those people hold true to those districts. They do not want to go a half a mile to a different school district. And I, I think for me, I really appreciate your paper and, and other people talking about this issue because we need to start to reconsider that mindset. Yeah, and, and people use open enrollment usually to access better schools. That's um, right. The you know in Texas they they have a, a cross district transfer program, and most fit families use that to transfer to schools that are ranked A. Um, yeah, that's right. And it, also, it, a lot of rural parents use it. People say, "Oh, it's going to work in rural areas." A lot of I think Michigan, Ohio, those are like where rural parents are the biggest users. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, many 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 rural families use this. Um, Lots of families use it to transfer to better schools. And I think the, the other thing as well is that it encourages school, it, 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 school districts are, no longer have this monopoly and it, it forces them to compete with other school districts. And we've actually seen this, this pan out. In California, uh, there's reports in 2016 and 2021, and it showed that they actually, uh, school districts that were bleeding students because they were transferring out, sure. uh, they did a survey uh, of local families, like what can we do to serve you better? They took that feedback, and it, and and made changes to their schools, and as a result, in some cases, uh, they actually stopped losing students. So school district school districts improved in response to open enrollment. Yeah, I mean they uh, had that option. I keep saying like, if you don't like this, you think all your students are going to leave. Number one, that says something about your school district, right, Mr. Superintendent? Um, if you're convinced that the parents are going to leave like rats from a sinking ship, then you do have this option of building a program that will attract parents and attract the money. Because I know it's going to be all about like, we can't have this because we'll lose money. Well, if you're losing money, somebody else is gaining that money. So yeah. also, one thing that I really loved about the paper that you wrote is this example you use, and it, I partly like it because it's from Missouri, but also it really made me think about something, which is two high schools. I think it was Southern Boone and Hickman Mills. That's not yeah. right. Yeah, I think I think that's right. very near to each other. I don't think those two are near to yeah. each other. So I must be I must have it wrong. Two I high schools close to each other, Hickman yeah, High and Southern Boone. Yeah, they're about a 20 minute drive, I think. Okay, so 20 minute drive apart. So you could live theoretically 10 minutes from each of them. And um, Southern Boone, you can get up to five AP credits. Yeah, that's right. Or classes. Yeah. And in Hickman, you could get up to 18. Exactly. So you have, basically, you could have the same exact student leave Hickman High to go to the University of Missouri, and, and their twin could leave Southern Boone to go to the University of Missouri. And the Southern Boone student has to pay thousands of dollars more in tuition because they now have to take all those freshman classes that the Hickman High graduate doesn't have to take. Exactly. Yeah. So it, it, it's it's crazy because it, you know, AP classes is something that rural school districts often struggle with in particular. And this is why I think uh, open enrollment is especially like it, it's an interesting uh, policy for rural families because uh, you can end up paying less for college and, you know, Four grand. I think in my paper I said it would, it would amount to about four grand, and that, that's not that's a small cool. amount by that's any right. means. Uh, and uh, you know, j just the only reason you have access to, uh, you know, basically cheaper college is because you're assigned residentially that's assigned right. to to a school district that has more AP courses. Like that's just crazy, and, and families want to take advantage of that. Like that's something I think that's going to resonate with every family. That's right. Uh, you know, same. You know. 
giving their kid the chance to save money on college tuition because we, we all know that's super expensive. Yeah, we have a lot. And by a lot, I mean maybe a hundred high schools that have that are very small. It's probably fifty high schools that are a hundred or fewer students. So maybe twenty to twenty-five in the graduating class. But we've a lot of those dozens, and those those schools cannot offer AP. They can't offer any language other than Spanish. They only have twenty-five graduates. You know, like yeah. they they struggle to have enough teaching staff to. They often thirty uh, percent of our high schools don't offer calculus. A lot of them don't offer physics. So they just don't offer the higher level math and science or the AP or other foreign languages. And that's probably okay for the for a lot of people, but there's going to be kids who that's not okay for, right? Yeah. Like there are going to be aspiring engineers and pilots and computer software developers in those that are happy to be born into those high schools and they simply cannot serve them. And to say that they can't leave to go to a high school within whatever driving distance is acceptable to you, like maybe it's yeah. 45 minutes, I don't know. And you can get calculus, physics, and AP, whatever that looks like to you. Um, that puts the, um, that puts that onto the family to decide, is that, is that, do we want to move? Do we want to drive every day? Which brings me back to uh, an important topic. How do you recommend that states um, address the problem of transportation? Yeah, so a lot of states actually prohibit us. Uh, they don't even allow school districts uh, to offer the option to cross, like to offer transportation across district boundaries. Wow. Um, and so I think, I think that the key here, like the bare minimum is just cre create a policy where districts can cross district boundaries to pick up transfer students. You have create these crazy stories uh, in, in places like Colorado where families are driving their kids just over the border into the next school district. And then a school district will send a bus to the to, to, to that boundary line, pick kids up in a parking lot and take them to school. And like that works for, uh, you know, the families that can afford to do that, you know, to yep. make that drive, but there are plenty of families that can't. Um, so, so I think that the, the bare minimum here is just allowing transportation across district lines. Uh, and, you know, the districts can figure out who's going to pay for that. Yeah, but in Wisconsin, uh, they they don't they attach transportation funding to every transfer student or something. Yeah, there, there, there's a it's it's a little I think it's a little over a thousand dollars. There's yeah. a, um in uh, tra transportation funds for for students. Now, Wisconsin is a state that gets a lot of open enrollment policy really right. Uh, awesome. You know, the 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 state's policy is not perfect in on every count. Uh, you know, for the record. Uh, in my paper, we have the five metrics. Uh, no state meets all five metrics. So I think that just shows that there's there's a lot of work to be done. There are several states that meet four out of out of the five. Um, Missouri now, got zero. Yeah, Missouri gets zero, unfortunately. <laughs> Hopefully, maybe nowhere next year, to go but up. It'll, it'll improve. <laughs> yeah, nowhere to go but up. Uh, but you know, if it makes Missouri feel better, they're they're not the only state like that. Um, but one thing that Wisconsin does really well is aligning financial incentives. How do they do um, it? So it has one of the most successful open enrollment policies in the nation. Uh, and it, I think that's because of their transfer funding policy. So a statewide per pupil funding amount, which is updated each year by the legislature, follows each transfer student to uh, their new assigned school district. So in Wisconsin, $8,500 or $8,200 or so is taken out of the sending district's state funding and put into the receiving district's state funding, which makes it a good incentive 
to receive students because it's probably at least the per student amount of state funding, if not more than that amount. So it does create a, uh, an incentive to receive students and a disincentive to lose students. So I think that that's, um, I think that's pretty interesting. I know that it works well. I know that what, 80 some thousand students in Wisconsin end up yeah, transferring it's, it's a lot. out it's of district. And I, and I suspect that it's something that families really like. I mean, have you found any survey information on, on how families feel about inter-district choice? Yeah, yeah. So in Wisconsin specifically, actually, Will Flanders has, uh, is writing a, a forthcoming, uh, writing a paper that's going to come out later, either later this year or really early next year. Like 70% range parents yeah. who yeah, lot, want to have this available. Yeah. So. Yeah. A, a lot of families, a lot of families clearly like it. Do you think that more states are moving towards having better open enrollment policies? Um, yeah, I, I think I think I think states are realizing that, you know, yes, ES, like the wins in Arizona and West Virginia with ESAs is incredible. Um, and, I, you know, of course, I'd love to see more states emulate yeah. those policies. But in a lot of cases, I think most kids are in public schools. Right. Um, the vast majority of them are. And I think state lawmakers are realizing open enrollment is a policy that's going to help most students. Uh, yeah, and it kind of keeps the money in the public school system, right? So yeah, yeah, there, there are some advantages there as well. I mean, uh, Arizona keeps, was in West Virginia said you can take your state funding anywhere. You can go to yeah, any no, private school, religious, another public school, a charter school, just take your money and go anywhere you want to go. Yeah, that's, that's definitely uh, like the best the best education policy uh, right possible but i think you know there there are some states where uh maybe maybe lawmakers realize that right now that's that's just not a viable option right. and in those cases they can do things like open enrollment which that's right. uh which just offers a lot of choice to a lot of families right off the bat that's right and parents are are standing up i agree with you and saying look for whatever reason the pandemic might have sh like shown a light on this, but for whatever reason, this this school doesn't work for this kid of mine, right? Exactly. And so I need at least one other option. In Missouri, the only option we don't have charter schools statewide; we just have them in St. Louis and Kansas City. The only option is virtual school, and a lot of parent families have decided they hate virtual school. <laughs> so yeah. that's like an option, but it's not a good option. So if you live anywhere outside of St. Louis or Kansas City. We have now a very small ESA program that maybe 3,000 students can get scholarships, not very many out of 800,000. So the 99% of families have nothing. And when this, you know, I say this all the time, I've been saying this for a long time. The reason that you might want school choice is the school is too big, the school is too small. The teachers don't mesh well with you. You don't like the way the school looks on the inside. The school doesn't yeah. feel safe. The school doesn't offer the class you want. I mean, there are as many reasons that you would want to choose a different school as are choosing a different doctor or grocery store or anything else. You know, I think I hear a lot about the loyalty to the school, but okay, what about all the other people that, you know, the school isn't a good fit regardless, yeah. you know? They're not disloyal. It's just not working. Those are the people, and there's a lot of them that need at least one other choice. Yeah, and open enrollment can afford that to them. And That's right. It's uh, you know, it it because like you were saying, it, their, their families want different reasons. All they all have their different reasons for wanting different. Doesn't schools. even matter. Um, but we we shouldn't really be judging whether or not those are the right reasons. We That's should right. let them 
pick those reasons and, and, uh, and, and go to a school that's a good fit. Whatever that reason is, you know, whether it's a better, easier commute for the family or sure. their kids. Getting jobs go. over there. And it doesn't, I mean, there's a million reasons. Like I, I'm agnostic on what your reason is, but um, yeah. But to say that you have no other option, and there's a lot of kids who are miserable in their schools, and a lot of uh, kids go to high schools in Missouri that don't even offer the classes you need to apply to the University of Missouri, and they can't save money freshman year by taking AP classes, and it's just really, I think we're holding on to this like really, you know, um, old-fashioned view of our schools and our high schools and how meaningful they are to us, when the reality is those kids need to go to college or get a job. And it's harder to do if you're in a situation that's not a good fit for you and doesn't offer what you need. Do you think, do you think um, uh, that we are sort of at the end of the world as we know it in public education? Do you think that we have hit an elbow and we're pivoting to a new way of doing things? Or do you think we're just going to keep incrementally sort of chipping away at the old way? You know, I'm not sure. Um, yeah, that's it's probably not a very satisfying answer, but I and I, I do think I, I will say I think like after the past two 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 and a half years, fa- families are definitely dissatisfied, and I think they're making their voices heard in ways that they were not heard before. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, that certainly has led to uh, like some big policy wins, like those in Arizona and West Virginia with ESAs. Um, mm-hmm. You know, the past couple of years, we you know they called it the year school choice. Was it? 2021, I think. With, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. With, mm-hmm. I, it, it all blends, blends together. Um, and I'm not 100% but, sure why interdistrict choice has bubbled up in Missouri, but I know it has. So it's like, yeah. Yeah. You know, so I, theory on like what puts something onto the public agenda and these streams that have to all come together. And I don't know if the streams all came together um, right now for interdistrict choice in Missouri, but it's it seems to be uh, a thing that either lawmakers are hearing from enough parents, mm-hmm. like, you cannot make me send my child to a school that requires them to wear a mask or whatever yeah. it is. Um, yeah. They've either heard from enough people or it's hit people that are in the middle income and up categories, which it has. Yeah. And that's, that's bumped it up. But I, I don't know. I think it could be a turning point. Yeah. I, 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 th- I think you're right. I, I think, I think right now there's a lot of momentum. So I'm, I'm hopeful about the future. I think yeah, the important thing is that folks that are involved with school choice, they're just going to have to, Ch- channel that the right way. Uh, I and I think that, with, uh, oh, 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 I hope your son will be will grow up and you'll have to explain to him what the world used to be like when you went to the school based on your address and he'll be like, "What?" Yeah, <laughs> I, I hope so too. Guess but, how know, we used to do it. <laughs> you know, there, there, there's a lot of work to be done though, because you know only 11 states have mandatory open enrollment. That's right. Uh, you know, while 43 states do have uh, open enrollment of some sort. Yeah. Uh, most of those laws are really weak. And so only 11 states have good policy. Uh, only three states require good, you know, annual reports from their state education agency. Only seven states require districts to report their available capacity. And 24 states uh, don't allow district, only 24 states don't allow districts to charge transfer students tuition. So I think there's a lot of work to be done. Yeah. Uh, but I, I think, I think the, the uh, discontent with the past two years and families realizing they don't have the control over their kids' education. Uh, I'm hoping that's put some fire in the belly. Uh, Yeah, a little fire. uh, (laughs) Um, Well, I hope that if you ever update this report, 
that Missouri will get a better score. I certainly hope so, too. I hope a lot of states get better. I'm really hopeful that the legislature will get it together this year, break through the mindset of we don't need this and realize that a lot of Missouri families, in fact, need this and want it and that we will at least get a point point on your scale. (laughs) Yeah, I I hope they do, too. All right, dude. Thank you so much for joining us and talking about this this morning. I appreciate it. Thanks, Susan.